Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Laura Brunnan. Laura is the founder and director of The Legal Strategist Limited, a B2B legal consulting and education business in which she brings expert big business legal advice to new and growing businesses. Prior to this, Laura worked as a private equity partner at a global law firm, Reed Smith, advising on international private equity transactions. In 2017, Laura became the first woman to lead the winning private equity team of the year at the British Legal Awards, and in the same year founded the 1973 Club, a social network for women in private equity. If that wasn't impressive enough, Laura is also a speaker and advocate for gender equality in her spare time is a very avid baker. So a very, very warm welcome, Laura. Wow, thank you for that, Rob. Wow, I don't quite recognise myself from that. that. It's weird when you hear someone saying it, but uh, yeah, thank you. Very pleased to be here. It's our absolute pleasure. And before we dive into all your amazing achievements and experiences today, we do have a customary icebreaker question here on the Legally Speaking podcast, which is, on the scale of 1 to 10, 10 being very real, what would you rate the hit TV series Suits in terms of its reality? Okay, uh, confession time. I've only ever seen snippets, okay? So my rating is going to be based on my snippets. Yeah. I'm going to have to vote it a one. <laughs> because there, I've never come across any partner that looks like or acts like Harvey. And there's no way, what's the guy called? Mike? No way he'd just sneak in without some sort of proper law qualifi- legal qualification. So that, that always annoyed me that he was able to do that. So I'm going to have to give it a one. But yeah. that's, you know... All legal dramas are, are pretty much <laughs> not uh, not very accurate, so can't really hold it against suits, really. No, exactly. I think I think one, given that you know, I, I think it's pretty unlikely most lawyers are getting in without any form of qualification. So fair, fair comment. But <laughs> and you know, having been in New York law firms and walked around their offices, they just do, they're not like that. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But let's start at the beginning before we get there. So tell our listeners a bit about your family background and upbringing. Oh gosh. Well. Um come from a very ordinary working class family, went to my local state comp, first in my family to do GCSEs and A-levels and obviously then first in my family to do to go to university. Yeah, good stuff. And then you started your career with Slaughter and May. How <laughs> did you find that period of your life with them? So it's one of those things, I was, I was talking to someone else about this the other day because, you know, they were like, did you really comprehend when you were at Slaughter's what sort of, you know, blue blood firm you were in and I think the answer is not really um so I I started at Slaughter's back in 2000 so 21 years ago now gosh uh totally clueless um (laughs) I ended up at Slaughter's because when I applied for training contracts there was only one of three firms open to start in autumn 2000 managed to get through the training contract interview and I know I turned up and I, I don't know, as I said, totally clueless. And, you know, training contracts in those days were very um, different to what they are now. You spent a lot of time paginating, proofreading, you know, the, the, the sort of the experience that trainees get now where they actually get to sort of um, work with clients and work on proper transaction documents. You know, that was sort of what light years away from what you know we did as trainees but you know Slaughter's got is you know one of these places that's got a bit of reputation but actually I 
I thought it was a very nice, friendly place to work. You know, I can't think of a bad word to say about anyone, to be honest. Good, good. And then, as I mentioned in my my introduction, you previously worked as a private equity partner at Reed Smith with some amazing clients such as L'Oreal. So what was that like and what experiences did that provide you with? So I actually started doing private equity at Kirkland and Ellis back in 2007. Um, and that was a real contrast. So, you know, I spent over six years at Slaughter's working for public public listed companies, doing public M&A takeovers, all that sort of stuff. And I actually went to K&E as a public M&A takeover code specialist. And then, great timing, Laura, that's when the market fell out. I got to do yeah. I got to do one from beginning to end and we worked on a couple of others. Um, so I turned myself into a private M&A specialist at K&E and the contrast between the clients was really interesting. So we you know, with PLC clients, you're sort of at the top, the way I like to describe it is you're at the top of like this little gentle, not even a hill, it's a gentle slope. And you're sort of just trying to nudge them down the slope to say, look, it's fine. You can do this. There's no problem. This is something you can do. With, you know, with PE clients, certainly then it was more, you know, they're dangling off the edge of the cliff and you're desperately, you know, mm-hmm. holding on to them by the ankles, trying to stop them doing something really stupid. <laughs> so... I mean, that's a bit of a facetious way. And I'm sure my more recent private equity clients would be quite offended to hear private equity described like that. But, you know, it's just a sort of a fun way of trying to demonstrate the difference between the sort of the client thinking, you know, with the with the PLC clients, it's all very constrained by things like the listing rules and, you know, all the, the public perception and, you know, all the quarterly reporting and everything else. Uh, as compared with private equity, where obviously they've got a lot more leeway to run the business as they see fit and so forth. So, um, I mean, it's very, you know, it's very fast paced doing private equity. I'd say more so in some ways than M&A, than public M&A. Public M&A tends to have a fixed timetable and you've got to do certain things by a certain deadline and so on and so forth. Whereas if private M&A, it's always it's, you know, like, we've got to get this done got to get this done now, got to get this done yesterday. And, you know, it's quite funny, the amount of times you get a heads of terms and, or, or a letter of intent that would say, right, exclusivity period runs out in six weeks and we must get the deal signed within six weeks. And you just sort of look at each other and go, you know, 90% of the time that never happened, 90% of the time it probably went on for another six to 12 weeks. But, you know, it's almost like this full sense of urgency, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, and I, I love it. And your your career, you've always sort of taken on challenges. And that's what brings me on to my next point. So as I mentioned, you've also recently begun your own startup, The Legal Strategist <laughs> Limited. Why did you decide to take this transition? And tell us a bit more about your exciting company. Okay, so I've obviously I've been corporate M&A lawyer in the city for 20 years. Um, there are lots of things that frustrated me about it. And it's it's sort of one of those it's one of those situations where you think actually you come to the conclusion actually it's not them it's me if that makes sense yeah and I I come to this stage in my career I was like well I've got probably another twenty years of working there are various things with this way of working in a big law firm that don't fit with my personality and don't suit me or the way I like to work and that so that's you know that's not. Um, me being derogatory about the big law firms because obviously they've got a lot going for them and they work for a lot of people. But I've come to, a, I mean, I'm 45 now. I've come to a stage where I sort of understand myself a bit more and, you know, maybe it would have been good if I could have got to that stage um, 
a bit earlier. But I was like, actually, you know, I want to be able to make those decisions for myself and run things and talk about things in a way that's, this sounds cheesy, but it's true to me. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, I did look at going to one of the virtual law platforms like uh, Keystone or something. But then I thought, well, actually, why don't I just do it myself? Because, you know, nowadays, you know, with the deregulation of the legal industry, I've set up a company um, and I don't have to be SRA regulated. So all that side, you know, what, what I do, M&A advisory, doesn't have to, isn't, isn't a reserved service or isn't a reserved activity. So I've, I've kept my own personal um, regulation as a solicitor, but my company doesn't have to, un, you know, deal with all the red tape or the overheads that SRA regulation brings with it. And, you know, so my company it's sort of got two arms to it. So the first arm is sort of M&A shareholder investment advisory work, sort of really building on what I've spent the last 20 years doing, which is buying and selling and running and structuring companies. Um, and so I'm working on that with, you know, M&A boutiques. I've got a couple of ex-corporate, you know, corp- you know a couple of ex-clients from, from, my, from the law firms, getting some new clients as well from LinkedIn and elsewhere. Um, and that's sort of the one-to-one consultancy advisory work. And then on the other, the other side, which is going to take you know a little bit of time to, to build up, is what I'm calling the one-to-many side of the business, right? And there were nearly there's nearly six million small medium businesses in the UK, and yeah. I th- I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but I think I think there were like nearly seven hundred thousand new ones, new companies set up last year in 2020, and. You know, the, the SME market generally feels like it's not served very well by the legal sector. You know, people have got all these perceptions of lawyers. You know, we're wordy, we're expensive, we find problems, we're pompous, we treat people like idiots. And so there are lots of things that are barriers or perceived barriers to sort of smaller businesses using lawyers properly. Um and so, you know, on that side of the business, I want to build, I'm building an online program to sort of put, run uh, small business owners through, to sort of equip them with everything they need to know and understand. I'm just moving slightly because the sun. Um, everything they need to know and understand with regards to running a business, right? And that's sort of plugging a gap, I think, because there are some, some, obviously people can go to lawyers and they'll, they, they're prepared to spend five, 10 grand setting their business up. Others, understandably, are not. Um, and then, you know, there are some people that will go and buy a bunch of templates or try and Google tem- legal templates from uh, the internet, which just makes me want to weep. Um, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to sort of plug the gap and provide some sort of hybrid products because you know when I was working out what I wanted to do one of the things I enjoy and I think I'm good at is teaching Mm. which is a bit ironic but you know something I've done with the you know with the with the junior associates for a long time is is mentoring and teaching and so on and so forth and I thought well can I how how can I translate that to a different market so now the idea is to teach and educate and help small business owners implement these things to get their businesses in, in you know, in, in, in a better position than they otherwise would be. And stop those anno- small, annoying things that crop up from time to time and take a, drain your energy and take up a lot of time and distract your focus. So if you've got all of that stuff sorted, you can then focus on, you know, what you enjoy doing in your business and, and growing it and building it. 
Yeah, and I, I just think it's wonderful what 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 you do because there is a need, and I think you know a lot of small business owners, a lot of startups, you know, are scared. You know, when they hear the word lawyers and legal fees, and you know whether they can afford it, whether they're going to get an advisory service, whether they're going to be left on the shelf. So I think you really do, you know, have a wonderful service offering where people are getting a very high caliber service, but without all of the sort of you know the red tape and all of the hassle that goes with it. So um, no, I think it's wonderful. So really excited to see the journey of the of the company. But on that. What advice would you give to someone about thinking about starting their own own business from your own experiences thus far? Um, spend a bit of time working out what all the areas of your business you need to cover are. So, for example, I spent a bit of time learning about marketing and sales and branding before I launched because... You know, I learned how to market and how to use LinkedIn more effectively, what you needed to do on Instagram, building a brand. You know, I when I first wrote my, I can't, I'm just scouring around for my first notebook on all of this, but, you know, I wrote down, oh, what's my name going to be? What's my logo? What fonts am I going to use? Yeah. And then I went on a brand program, which was excellent, actually, um, at the beginning of the year. And she's, she's like, you know, your brand is not about your fonts and your logos and your colours. That's your visual branding. But the, the actual branding goes much deeper than that. It's about what you stand for, who you are, who your client yeah. is, how you speak, what you talk about, how you talk about it. Um, so I, w- I would say spend some time figuring out what all the different components of your business are and what you can do yourself and what you need to learn about and what you should outsource. So for me, I outsource a lot of the tech. I got someone to help me build my website, connect all the widgets together, for want of a better word, because it just stressed me out and would take so much time. And I'd rather, you know, spend some money getting someone who knows what they're doing to do that so for me you know obviously I did my own legals I learned about branding and sales um and I've I've been doing all of that myself but having educated myself about it I've I've obviously outsourced to an accountant uh, I've outsourced the tech so just sort of think about almost think about your business as in all the different departments and what you need really and try not to be over ambitious either just sort of start out with minimum viable product I I've got a funny story about this so when back in this must have been back in June I was desperately trying to get my um, my website ready and I had some ideas about you know certain things that needed to be perfect before I launched because I was a lawyer and I had to show best practice and practice what I preach um and anyway, I was talking to one of my friends who is a, he's not a web designer, but he knows all about how to put websites together and how, you know, SEO and all that stuff that frankly mm-hmm. I still don't understand. And I was getting stressed. I was like, well, I've got to do all these things on my website and I've got to put this together and that together. And he said, Laura, who's going to look? No one's going to care. I'm like, but it's, but it's got to be right. He said, no, no, no one's going to care. And by the way, I would delete t- three quarters of what you've written on your homepage because no one's going to read it and no one's going to care. Yeah. And, you know, when you do launch, you're probably going to be, there's probably going to be crickets or certainly you're not going to be as busy as you would like. So use that time to get some of this less important stuff done. So that's another way of saying what people say is what, you know, done is better than perfect is one of the, the phrases I keep seeing when yeah. uh, it's way around LinkedIn. So just work out what the minimum you need to get started is and just go for it. Because if you start 
trying to make sure everything's absolutely perfect and good to go, you just drive yourself crazy. And it, it, you know, and what you think is important might not be important to your cu- customers anyway. I think that's such good advice. And, you know, I've fallen into that trap myself when I started my own businesses. And I think, you know, I'd always say, you know, imperfect action over perfect, you know, inaction any day of the week. So, uh, yeah, love that. And now time for a short quiz. Can you guess how many of your prospective clients now expect to work with you online? If you guessed almost four out of five or 79%, you got it right. Want to learn more about where the future of the legal profession is headed? Then leading practice management software provider Clio has just released a resource I think you're all going to love. In their 2021 Legal Trends Report, they compiled data from tens of thousands of legal professionals to chart the major upcoming trends for law firms. The annual Legal Trends Report is released every October and you can get your copy for free at clio.com forward slash legal trends that's c-l-i-o.com forward slash legal trends now back to the show so with the the legal strategist you also very kindly offer a number of free resources so can you tell our listeners a bit about this and how they can access them well, sure. So a couple of free resources. So I offer us, you know, a free, what I call a free discovery call. Um, yeah, where, you know, which is depending on what the, what you're looking for is 20 to 30 minutes long. And to be honest, it's normally a bit longer than that because I don't say, oh, 30 <laughs> minutes is up, disconnect. Um, yeah. So, you know, I've, I've, you know, I've helped a lot of people with, with my, just with my free 30 minutes because, Particularly if you're, if, you know, if I'm asking you to spend X amount in fees with me, you need to get a sense of, you know, are we going to work well together? Can you understand what I'm saying? So people come to me if they're thinking about setting up a business and we can sort of talk around some of the issues that, um, you know, might come up and what they need to think about. Just generally with my consultancy as well, I'll do a free, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes discussion um, and then the other free resource I have at the moment is a guide to how to apply for your UK trademark. So, uh, you know, I'm a big advocate of where you can do things for yourself for free, where it's quick, it's easy and it's relatively risk free. Then us lawyers shouldn't be hogging the knowledge and the know-how. So, yeah. you know, with sorry, more sun here, but... Um, with trademarks, you know, for most of us, we only need one or two. We don't need a whole portfolio of them. And so I've put together this resource which sort of walks you through how to apply for it. Um, and it comes with a couple of videos as well. And then obviously I've got my Instagram account, which is I am which is I am Laura Brunnen. I often post, you know, legal tips and advice there. Um you know, and there's, I'm always happy to hear from people if there's things they would like me to cover or talk about more. Because from from my perspective, it's all about demystifying things. You know, one of my I have a myth buster series, a jargon buster series, legal tips. You know, one of my myth busters was: Does your business have to be a company? Because everyone's obsessed with setting up a company and being a company director. And you know. Out of, I think, as I said earlier, about 6 million small businesses in the UK, 3.5 million are sole traders. They're not mm. limited companies. And so should those sole traders be limited companies? Well, maybe some of them should be. But, you know, there are different ways of structuring your business. And I think people get too hung up on, you know, the whole being a company 
thing. And then when they do think about being a company, they get worried that there's a lot of bureaucracy cost and red tape. And again, if you're a small business or, you know, there's one or two of you, you can do it relatively, (laughs) relatively smoothly um, with not too much bureaucracy or red tape. And, you know, if if it's just you, then it's relatively easy and there's not lots of paperwork or filings or anything like that. So I'm just sort of trying to demystify things and sort of say to people, this is important. Yes, that's important, but you don't, don't, you know, don't lose sleep over these things you know, at night. Like, you know, GDPR is a um, perfect example of that. We all need to get data privacy right and make sure we've got proper policies and processes in place. But don't get super stressed by it. When you go on the Information Commissioner's website about fines that have been levied, I think they've, I think they've issued 72 since 2018. And it's for people that are totally spamming people with like hundreds of thousands of emails or calls it's not for you know, most small business owners that have messed up a couple of things yeah. that's not to say you shouldn't do it and get it right but try not to get so stressed and you know turn it into this huge problem in your head yeah no you're absolutely you're absolutely right and you know on a on a sort of positive note as well you're no stranger to the media you've been featured in the telegraph the lawyer bloomberg law so tell our listeners the sort of things you tend to get interviewed for well pre uh, pre jumping off by myself i used to just i, mean, I used to get inf- um interviewed you know for things to do with m&a tips or what was going on in the m&a market or you know um last year I think it was last year. Uh, last year, private equity uh, insights. I was, you know, I was on a panel for uh, top forty, div- you know, top forty under forty diversity and inclusion. So, you know, I was I was often asked to comment on things, you know, from a legal perspective. I think back in twenty seventeen, I was featured in the lawyer as, you know, one of the top. One of the top female deal makers in the private equity space, and there's a lot of you know there's a lot of people on that front cover that you know people that that, that, that you know are familiar with the PE space will um, will recognise. So that you know that was quite nice to be featured like that. Um, since I left and set up by myself, it's more about why I've left, yeah. what big law was like, what could be better, how I'm finding life as a startup. You know, I, I sort of hesitate to use the word, you know, an entrepreneur because that sounds, you know, at the moment it's just me, but I do have plans to, um, I don't want this just to be a job, Rob. Mm. Okay. I don't want this just to be me churning out legal work by myself for the next 10, 15, 20 years. And then I come to retire and the whole business just goes poof, you know, I want to build something because the ultimate goal is to have a business that is more than me. Yeah. And can run without me, and ultimately is something that I can exit um, when I decide I don't, you know, I don't want to work anymore. Yeah, and good, good for you, good for you, and I'm sure that's definitely going to happen. I'm excited to see the journey. So you're also the founder, as I mentioned in the introduction, the 1973 Club, so a social network for women in private equity. Tell us a bit more about the network and why you felt the need to create it. So that I, I came up with the idea for that about four and a half years ago, actually, when I just joined Reed, I joined Reed Smith early 2017. And I'd, you know, as a woman in private equity, you're used to being one of a few, 
but it got to the stage where I'm like, this is this is getting a bit ridiculous. I know there are other females in the PE space, but 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 where are they? You know, and you'd go to the main networking events and it was, you know, you were just so outnumbered. And it's not like most of the chaps were unpleasant or horrible. Nothing like that. But, you know, you just feel like you can't quite be yourself, if that makes sense. And, you know, and I think the, the tip of the, you know, the thing that pushed me over the edge was I worked on a transaction um, and I'm being in a meeting and there were 22 of us in this meeting to get this deal done. There were 11 on one side and 11 on our side. And out of the 22, there were two women in the room, me and the senior associate working with me on the deal. The rest of it was blokes. And then a closing dinner for a different transaction. Again, there must have been about 20, 25 at this dinner. You know, it was the PE house, the investment bank, the management team, the accountants, you know, you name it, the lawyers. Again, <laughs> well, it's even worse, actually. I was the only woman. And again, no one, no one's unpleasant. Although it did make me laugh at the, at the dinner, um, we uh, we had uh, they did a quiz because we'd sold uh, a business related to cars. And they did a quiz about Formula One, and they sort of said at the beginning, "Oh, really sorry, Laura." You know, <laughs> and I'm like, "Okay, that's fine." <laughs> but first question, I didn't know the answer to, and my client got the question right and won a bottle of champagne and gave it to me, which was so sweet. And then the second question, I got right. Hey. <laughs> and they're all a bit like, who's this ringer? I'm like, well, <laughs> I did used to like Formula One. Don't anymore. But anyway, so I but I, I graciously declined to take my second bottle of wine. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so that was sort of a long way of saying I just knew there were other people out there and I'd finally started working with private, you know, prince, female principals at the private equity houses. So I'd look, I'd worked with like uh, Flor Kasai at Inflection when I was at KWM and I knew they were out there and there was obviously um, other organisations out there um, that, 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 like level 20, which has been set up by the PE houses themselves. But that was very structured, if that makes sense. And also it's more focused on the women in the in the in the PE houses rather than the rest of us. So anyway, so I thought, well, I just want to do something where we get to know each other in an informal environment. So I put a proof of concept together, went to Reed Smith Management. They were very supportive and loved the idea. Um and came up with it and so you know the BD team really helped me and we did we we sort of held two or three events a year we you know did fun things so we started off at, we did a launch at Burberry we did another event at a Mayfair Jewelers we did something at Space NK we went to a art gallery you know it was very lovely but it was just it's meant to be fun and relaxing um and we also partnered up with a charity called Child's Eye Foundation. So we also sort of try, you know, it was women helping women. And it was, we sort of worked together to help raise money for them as well. Brilliant. So wonderful. And I'm glad about that. And yeah, good for you, maybe not taking the second bottle. And uh, what was the question? What was the question? Can you remember? I can't remember, but the answer was Jackie Stewart. There we go. There I can we... remember the answer. <laughs> Good stuff. Okay. And as we discussed earlier as well, you are a speaker, you're an advocate for gender equality. And in 2017, you became the first woman to lead the winning private equity team of the year at the British Legal Awards. What do you think are the benefits of having women in leadership positions? 
Well, I mean, we just, you've asked me questions I've not felt thought that deeply about, Rob. So this is all completely off the cuff. But <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't want to stereotype because we are all different. But I think... I, I, I think, generally speaking, women possibly try to understand the other point of view a bit more yeah. and try to play the man, if that makes sense, not the ball. So, you know, I will adapt how I re- respond and deal with people depending on them and what they're like. And I sort of try and map out, well, if they're going to do this, then maybe I'll do that because then they're more likely to do what I want them to do. Whereas I think, again, very, very generally speaking, I think men in leadership positions tend to sort of just push things through in a less, what's the word I'm looking for? But they with less consent, you know, they they don't need the consensus. And maybe, maybe, you know, I think sometimes women in leadership, we need too much consensus and we care too much about everyone being happy. Right. Um, so I think there's a happy medium to be held there. But also it's just it's not just about women in leadership. It's just about people generally being in leadership. You know, it's the, the more difference voices there are and also just there being role models for, for, you know, for kids and young people coming up through the system and just seeing, you know, people up there and going, well, you know, I'm I that they've made it. So, I you know, I might have a shot at it, too, whereas if it's just a bunch of. You know, sorry, sorry, chaps, but you know, white middle-aged men. That's you know, that's not very inspiring for a lot of people, unless yeah. you happen to be a white man who wants to be a white middle-aged man. <laughs> Which, you know, I'd have thought most young white men would want to be middle-aged, but uh, you know what I mean. So it's, uh, I think it's just about having you know diversity of voices and difference of a uh, different thoughts and different ways of dealing with people because we all can learn from each other. You know, no one's perfect, no one's got all the answers. And yeah. you know, I think McKinsey did some reports on this. It, um, you know, that actually more diverse organisations are more profitable. Now, I don't know if that's you know a cause causation's not correlation. Um, you know, there have been various reports about that. So if you look at it from a more um, selfish perspective, then you're going to make your your business is likely to make more money if you sort of are more open to you know bringing different people to the table. Yeah, really well said, and I couldn't agree more. And finally, before we wrap up, what advice would you give to young women entering the legal profession in 2021 and beyond? Get out. (laughs) You're going to have to delete that bit. (laughs) You could have told me you were going to ask me that. Um, Oh, God. What advice would I give? Um, Be, okay, I'd say be clear in who you are um, and what you're interested in. Get as many experiences as you can. Learn from as many people as you can. But try and get a real sense of what drives you and what interests you. Because, you know, if, if you're going to be in this career for the next 20, 30, 40 years, it's got to be doing something you love. Don't just do it for the, the perceived prestige or, you know, for the, for the money, because one day that won't sustain you. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And if people want to follow or get in touch with you about anything we've discussed today, what's the best way for them to do that? Feel free to shout out your website links or relevant social media. We'll also make sure we share them with this episode for you as well. Well, I think the best place is probably to find me on LinkedIn. So I'm the only Laura Brunnan I've ever found on the internet. So (laughs) 
Look for Laura Brunnan on, on LinkedIn. I also have a website, www.laurabrunnan.com, funnily enough. And I'm also on Instagram at I am Laura Brunnan because although I'm not I'm the only Laura Brunnan, someone else has nicked Laura Brunnan uh, on yeah. Instagram, even though she's called Laura Brunelli. I'm like, give me my name back. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Instagram challenges. But there we go. Thank you so much, Laura, for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Wishing you lots of continued success with the Legal Strategies Limited and everything you've got planned for the future. But from all of us on the Legally Speaking podcast, over and out. This week's review comes from Yassim Mikel. Amazing, five stars, really interesting and engaging podcast, covering a wide range of topics, providing an in-detail insight into the legal industry. Thank you so much, Yassim. We really appreciate your lovely, kind words and support for the Legally Speaking podcast. From all of us on the show, thank you so much once again. 